This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season will bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we get into today's podcast, which is from the Like Jesus Initiative, how about that for a name? I want to make sure you check out Dan Spader's helpful and free ebook called Disciple Making Metrics. If you've wondered, how can we as a church tell if we're actually making a difference trying to make disciples? You could ask that of your church or your organization or your ministry. This ebook will help you sink your teeth into the facts by helping you assess and looking at your real-life disciple-making metrics. It's a guide to help you do that. Download this free resource at discipleship.org ebooks and click on the title Disciple-Making Metrics. Today's podcast content comes from the Like Jesus Initiatives track at the National Disciple-Making Forum, and the episode is called Like Jesus and Metrics, What We Must Measure in a Disciple-Making Ministry, featuring Dan Spader and Glenn Underhill. Take a listen. Okay, I have, oh, it's 1017, uh, it's time to go, so I just got done, so I'm winded. In the... <laughs> How many of you were not in the last session? Oh, we had so much fun. Did we not? We looked, we just exegeted John 17, so we had fun. Sorry you missed it, maybe next time. Okay, but anyway. How many of you have not been in any of these like Jesus tracks? Can I see your hand? Okay, okay, number of you, number of you. All right, great. That kind of helps me. Um, how many of you are ministry leaders? You lead a, okay, put your hand up high. I want to see. Okay, great. Uh, probably a greater percentage. How many of you are lay people working in a lay role in a church? Okay, good. All right, so that's going to kind of temper how I'm taking this. Uh, I've got a, where's Glenn at? Is Glenn here or is he kind of letting me do this? I was supposed to team up with Glenn, but Glenn kind of knows me. Once I get in a role, he doesn't get a chance to say anything. But, uh, but anyway, I'll, uh, I am coming out, Lord willing, with Bobby. We're writing an ebook on disciple making metrics, okay? So this is kind of testing some of the water of that, but uh, been at this for a long time. Uh, have a variety of things. Uh, but let me ask you this also to help me know what I cover and what I don't cover extensively in this. We've got a limited time. How many of you have been exposed to the training of sunlight in the past? Can I see your hand? Okay, about a third of you. Okay, so that'll help also. Uh, so Glenn, I, I'm sorry. I just said I'm going to do this by myself and I'm not going to let you say anything. So. No, Glenn, Glenn is... Uh, um, uh, Great friend, the brother, has done all the training in Sun Life, been executive pastor of two of our model ministries in North America with Craig Etheridge, Ken Adams. They're both here at Impact and Disciple First. And as executive pastors taught all of our material, he's on the ground, boots on the ground, is fleshing this out in, a, in a two different settings, really a third. Uh, and so he just, he, I'll give you the concepts, he'll give you, oh, that doesn't written out good. Here's a real thing to measure. All right. So now, uh, Glenn's a dear brother and Lord, a great disciple maker. And so we're going to kind of team up in this. So Glenn, you've got to speak up. So if you want to say something, you, uh, but I'm going to start off. So 
And uh, I got to always start off, again, a number of you were in this last session, so I apologize. I'm just a consummate equipper. I, I do a lot of training around the world. So I just, I always have to start off with an intelligence test. And uh, I did this the last session. So just humor me, just humor me. Uh, um, so this is a picture of a word. What's the word? Carpool. Now, it's usually the intelligent side comes through. I said before, whenever you speak, this help you. The most intelligent people always sit on the speaker's left. Party animals tend to sit in the middle. People, and the right-hand side, especially the back, tend to be the troublemakers. That's research. It's proven it. So we'll see if that tends to be true. So, but, so the smart people came through. This is, this is carpool, okay? Carpool. So you all with me on this now? Um, all right. So now, having said that, let me give, I'm going to give you four in a row. I'm going to give you 10 seconds each. You've got to pair up, team up with somebody next to you. So get to know them if you don't know them. If you don't like them, now's a good time to move. Okay? So pair up with somebody, and I'm going to just see if my intelligent people are really on my left. And I want to get you thinking creative. Okay. So I'm going to give you four of these, and you can write down the answer, but don't just, I'll give you 10 seconds each. So we'll see how you're doing. All right, this is number one. Talk amongst yourself and jot down the answer. That's number one. Don't say it too loud if you get it. All right? That's number one. This is number two. This is number three. And then this is number four. So what was number one? Crowbar. Give yourself more. What was number two? Dress rehearsal. Good. What was number three? Good, post nasal grab. What was number four? Face lift, face lift. How many got four out of four? How many got three out of four? How many got two out of four? How many hate these things? <laughs> Let me pray. I always got to pray after that, okay? Father, we ask you to show up. We ask you to teach us. Uh, we're going to learn together. I'm really learning at this, like everybody in this room. I think the church in America is getting better and better at this, but we got so far to go. So, Father, I pray that by your spirit, you'd say something that will help everybody in this room. Uh, some of us lead large churches. Some of us lead small churches. Some of us are co-leaders. Some of us are lay disciples leading small groups, leading men's ministry, youth ministry. We're all over on the map. So, Father, I'd help, pray that you'd help each of us, by your spirit, apply these truths to our life. And we'll thank you for that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My name's Dan Spader. Um, for those of you who are first in time in the session here, uh, kind of got started in the life of Christ about 40, 50 years ago when a professor made the statement, some of Christ's initial disciples could have been teenagers. And he encouraged me to study the life of, chrono, life of Christ chronologically. What did Jesus do the first year? What did he do second year? What did he do third year? What did he do fourth year? We call it a youth group, Sun Life, because we're just trying to live the son's life. I'd only been a Christian two years and was a youth pastor. Didn't have a clue what a youth group does. So I said, let's just do what Jesus did. Sounded like it made sense to me. And an engineering background, I got saved out of engineering. I just began to analyze the life of Christ. Where did he go? What did he say? What did he teach? Why did he not do this? Why did he do this? Why didn't he only do two miracles in the first 18 months? One that nobody knew about. Why? 
And then what did he do second year? Where did he go? What did he say? What did he teach? Why did he go to five individuals and said, follow me, I'll teach you to reproduce, but not the rest? And well, the next two years, spend 17 times with the crowds, but 46 times with just these few. Why? As a Messiah. So begin to analyze, and that was my 10-year doctoral work, but it's been my lifelong passion to try to help people, myself included, get to the real Jesus. Not the caricature of Jesus a lot of us have. The Superman Jesus who looks human but goes into the phone booth, comes out with a cape and he's been sucking on kryptonite, does miracle. That's faulty theology. What was the real Jesus that over 40 times the Bible says, do what he did, walk as he walked, follow that pattern. Okay? And my apologies for those in the last session. I just kind of summarized some things. I'm going to do a little bit more summary, but then we're going to get into metrics because... I have a very definite grid for, for measuring disciple making, but it's based upon the life of Christ and the philosophy of Christ. Okay, how Jesus made disciples. Not best theories out there, but how did Jesus do it? I don't know a lot. I just really love to know the life of Christ. And that's been my passion for 45 years, to study Jesus. That's why I've been to Israel over 50 times. Because I love studying the geography of Israel. Because it helps me understand Jesus better. When he says he went from you know, Cana with his brothers and sisters down to Capernaum. And you begin to see that's an 18 mile trip. You begin to think different about Jesus. What were they talking about? What were they discussing? Remember his first miracle up in Cana? Can you imagine that discussion? It says he's with his disciples. Brand new ones. He just said come and see him follow me. Way down in Bethany. He's up at the wedding in Cana. It's going to take an 18 trip for a couple days to spend in Capernaum. He just turned 180 gallons of water into wine. He's with his brothers and his new disciples. Can you imagine that discussion? Man, Jesus, how'd you do that? Just do that every month, Jesus. And we're rich, I could hear his brother saying. I mean, imagine Mary. Jesus, that's the first miracle. How, whoa, where did that come from? I mean, can you imagine those discussions? When you walk that journey, you just, you, you begin to think differently about what I call the real Jesus. The Jesus we're called to imitate. Now, again, maybe I don't need to say this. I said this last time, but I just feel like I might. There are several forms of Jesus in the Bible. You know that? Biblically, that's right. There are really five. Theologically, let me give you three. And I use the Greek word morphe out of Philippians 2. A form. Who was in the form of God, took on the form of man. You have the pre-incarnate Christ. What do we know about the pre-incarnate Christ? Created everything you see, he created. What else? It was the word. He holds it all together. At the right hand of the Father. Creator of all. Appeared in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. Okay? Then you have the resurrected, glorified King Jesus that we've been talking about this conference. What does the King Jesus do right now? What's he doing right now? Sitting at the right hand of the Father. What else? What's that? He's interceding on our behalf. What else? It's the head of the church. And you could go on what King Jesus is doing now. He's coming back, okay? That's what he's doing now. But then you have what I like to call the I-Jesus, the incarnate Jesus. You don't have an iPhone, iPad. I-Jesus, who walked on this earth, who was man as God intended man to be, the second Adam. Never less than God, he chose to live his life never more than man. Forty times we're told 
in the life of Christ and in the Bible to do what that Jesus did. Not what the glorified King Jesus is doing now or what he did in the Old Testament. We're not creators in that way. But we are told 40 times to walk as he walked, love as he loved, serve as he served, follow the pattern he gave us, do what he did. So that's the, that's the Jesus I think we have missed in America. We've, we, we've got this caricature of this Jesus. The Bible says there was nothing in him we should be drawn to him. He was not six foot five, tall, dark, and handsome, blue eyed. No. He was so common, so normal in so many ways in human form that those who had the hardest time believing him were his brothers. Those in his hometown. Remember, they want to throw him off the ridge? What is that? Ta- so I could go on and on. All right, I, I've said enough there. But that's the Jesus that I really wrestle a lot with studying. Now, in our session, with this is the fifth track. Uh, again, a lot of you are in here for the first time, so I'm going to do a quick overview of what we've done. We wrestled with the mission of Jesus. We talked about the four chairs. Um, they said it last night. This comes out of work I did at Southeast Christian, training a mega church with 400 staff. We spent seven years training all their staff in the life of Christ. We said, how do we get this in a simple, transferable way to the 30,000 people in the church? We put together three resources on the mission of Jesus, the model of Jesus, and I just did the last session on the message of Jesus. Uh, It's not everything you need, but how do you create a culture of disciple making in your church? How do we get this out? And we... In Sun Life, if you know anything about Sun Life ministry, I led for 25 years. Doug Lee's now, and Glenn's participating with us on. Um, Sun Life is all about the Sun's life. Uh, we've, we've spent our uh, 40 years just trying to analyze the real Jesus that walked this earth. So, in that first session, we talked about four chair discipling. This is the, ma- the, the mission of Jesus. And we, the four chairs is just a metaphor. For the four challenges Jesus gave. First challenge, John 1. Come and see it. For the lost, just show up. Ask questions. Search. John 1, 30. Then the second challenge, a different word, is follow me. Akulatheo in the Greek. It really means to walk behind. Walk in my steps. Learn of me. It's a, a discipling term a rabbi would often say to somebody he wanted to disciple. Akulatheo. Follow me. That was a challenge Jesus gave to initially to Philip who went and got Nathaniel. Follow me. Third challenge, 18 months into Jesus, which most people don't understand. First 18 months, Jesus only did two miracles, relatively relational. He goes and says, follow me. I'm going to teach you to reproduce. I'm going to make you a fisherman. He does that to five individuals. This is before the 12. And from this point on, you find Jesus 17 times at the masses but 46 times with these few. You don't have to be real smart to figure out how intentional Jesus was in making disciples, right? Amazing when people begin to see that. And then the last challenge is go, bear fruit, at the end of his ministry. And how many farmers do we have here? Again, I asked this last time, only the same person. That's the problem with the American church. Not enough farm. Farmers get this intuitively. Fruit in the Bible is always a picture of multiplication. Go and reproduce. Go and multiply. We tend to define fruit as just internal. 
Fruit, biblically, is three things. Character, conduct, and converts. But it's always a picture reproduction. You multiply Christ's character in you, then into others. You multiply acts of service in you, and then others. And you multiply new converts. It's a picture reproduction. And when Jesus talked about these four chairs, there's so many layers to this. And I explained in the last session how this came out, training the elders. They weren't getting it. So I grabbed four chairs to represent the four challenges of how Jesus developed people. And, and they began to really get this and ask, why are there, what are the barriers between churches? And this megachurch said, we're chair one and chair two church. How do we get more chair three, chair four people? And we spent two, three years studying that, talking about how did Jesus develop more workers because the harvest was plentiful, but the workers are few. And what's a real biblical worker? And, and then how do we send people out to launch new ministries and new movements? And how many people did they have in their church that led somebody to Christ? And how many people did they have that have the second, third generation of disciples? And we began to ask totally different questions when we understood that disciple-making path. But remember in John 15, Jesus talked about John vine and branches, no fruit, fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. <laughs> remember that? Oh, I love to teach that passage. I got a whole chapter on that in my book. It's one of my favorite passages, right? The last thing Jesus, being the consummate teacher, could not not teach. And he's walking down the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes through a vineyard, I believe. And he stops and says, guys, here's what your future looks like. Talks about no fruit. And he talks about fruit. He talks about more fruit. You're going to get pruned if you're bearing fruit to bear more fruit. And you got to, he talks about barriers between chairs and barriers between his, But he said, John 15, 8, this is my Father glorified that you what? Bear much fruit. Now, again, I said this last session. I want to say it here because I always want you to get this. Because we're going to talk about metrics based upon these four chairs. God's agenda on the authority of God's word. I can say with full conviction, God's agenda is to get every one of you in this room to chair four. Would you agree with me? And by the way, it's not about you. You see, I find so many people get to chair three. Oh, I'm a worker. I give, I tithe. I've done my job and I'm going back to chair two. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. You see, chair three is about suffering, servanthood, and sacrifices. That's still honored to go off. And, and, and chair three is tough as all. But if you endure, and I could talk so long about this, we get caught in busyness and bitterness. My daughter talked about this in this track. And, and, but God's agenda is to get us to much fruit. And this is where we begin to create a movement of multiplying disciples. And God, based upon John 15, 8, he said, by this is my father glorified. Why is he glorified when people get to chair four? Because a lot of people in chair three, oh, God's so lucky to have me. You know, I'm a worker. I die. Oh, we never say it that way, but deep down we're thinking, God is so lucky to have me. Look, and I'm at a disciple-making conference. And God's still got to break us a little bit. We've got to learn to die to self. Because only when you die to self do you really begin to multiply. But then God moves us to chair four. And when you get to chair four, everything changes in a Christian walk. Because chair four, the Bible says you become no longer, I no longer call you a worker, I call you friends. In chair four, everything changes because you now have devotions, not because you have to, but because you want to. 
In chair four, you just have a whole new perspective because you realize it's not about you. As a matter of fact, if God does anything through you, John 3, 21 and John 17, 7, it's the father who does it, not you. And you see that clearer than anybody. That's why it's kind of funny for me to get an award last night. What do you even say? If you know your Bible, the answer is this. God did it. I'm just along for the ride. God did it. Would you not agree? It was not part me. Oh, sure, I worked. I tried to walk as Jesus walked. But who gives the increase? Why are we in 137 countries? You don't know me, but I'm not real smart. You don't know me, but I'm just a pig farmer from South Dakota who God miraculously saved. First two years I was in ministry, I couldn't stand in front of people to talk because I was too nervous. It's all God. I learned 40 plus years ago that if I try to do what Jesus did, walk as Jesus walked, follow the pattern, the mission of Jesus, and then the model and methods, which we're going to talk about briefly, and we're going to get into metrics. If I did that, you know what? 40 plus years of doing that. Why do I have disciples all over the globe? It's not me. It's all him. I love to go to different parts of the world with my continent leaders. Several came out of my youth group, but but find disciples of their disciples of their disciples, and they call me spiritual granddad. I never met them. This stuff works. And it's not me. Did you hear me? It's not me. Just early on, I realized that if I walk as Jesus walked and do what Jesus did, I can do what Jesus did to that degree. Make sense? So we talked about that mission. It's make disciples, make disciples. God wants to give us all a cheer for it. Then we talked about the model. And again, this is an acronym we use, 35 years of studying Jesus. We tried to identify Jesus because of his humanity. Was man as God intended man to be? And we asked the tough question, how did Jesus do what Jesus did? Now again, my, danger, my point is I want to teach that. And I'm not going to. Because some of you are in the last session. I probably went too long on that. But the human, Doug spent a whole session on the humanity of Christ. I find most North Americans totally amiss the humanity of Jesus. He was fully God, but he was also what? And Hebrews 2, if you understand it, those of you who love theology, Hebrews 2 says the only way he could make atonement for our sins was he had to be fully human. He could not dip into his deity to live out his humanity. And so everything he did in his humanity, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Study to see if it's not so. I've written on this. You can download articles on it. It changed my discipling when I began to understand that. So we have an acronym, Studying the Life of Christ. We say there's, there's six foundational priorities in Jesus. Number one, Holy Spirit dependent. Everything he did, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, what does that say about us? Audience response question. Did you hear that? Boy, how badly we need the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, did miracles by the Spirit, raised by the Spirit, even presented himself pure, Hebrews 9.18, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, prayer. 45 times he slipped away to pray. 33 different instances. The busier Jesus became, the more he prayed. Do you think we could learn anything from that? Obedience learned. 
Power, spelling out power now. He will learn obedience. Hebrews 5, 7. If you're perfect, why do you need to learn obedience? But he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does that mean? I believe it means it grew his obedience muscles. His obedience at 5 was not as great as obedience at 25. Yes, he never sinned. He never disobeyed. But he grew his obedience muscles. Are you growing obedience muscles? Can you do obey more now than you could a year ago? You see that? In his humanity, he grew his obedience muscles. Oh, I can't. Word-centered. 84 times he quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. 72 different chapters. He submitted to the scriptures. He obeyed the scriptures. He respected the scriptures. He believed in the scriptures. The book he wrote. He had to learn. Figure that one out. Because he's showing us how our posture should be toward the written word of God. He exalted his father in everything. He had relationships of love. So we call that Holy Spirit power. What is our model? Jesus. And this is not a buzzword for me. A lot of people, it's a buzzword. Oh, yeah, Jesus is our model. And then they study Paul. And I love Paul. Really? I'm telling, there are books written out of this. Whole first chapter, Jesus is our model. Then the rest of the book's about Paul. Paul said, imitate me as what? I imitate Christ. And then our method. Last session, we were, I really got wound up there. I'm sorry. Um, we did just study John 17, the seven I statements of Jesus. In his own words, the last thing Jesus did, he prayed for his guys. In the, in the Kidron Valley before he crossed over to the garden. And he prayed for them and he made seven I statements. And I just love John 17. The third studies on that. I think it's the best study I've done, but probably it's selling the least because it's deeper. But um, I just love it because in his own word, Jesus said, here's how you make disciples. I call them the seven daily disciplines of a disciple maker. And there are seven of them. We walked through the seven. I never remember seven. So I, I'm a sim- I love the thing simple. I'm kind of simple mind. So if I could, so I broke it down to pray, care, share, and I have one, three, three. And I remember that. And to me, whenever I teach on how to disciple anybody, children, how to, you know, teach children how to disciple, just do these three things. It's based upon John 17 model, right from Jesus' own word. It's, it's good. I mean, not my content, but the scripture is good. Okay? So then, now let's talk about metrics. So we looked at, and, and that's what these three things were about. In our track, we looked at the mission of Jesus, make disciples, make disciples. We had the four-chair metaphor. We talked about the walk like Jesus. That's Holy Spirit power. That's how he did what he did in his humanity. And then live like Jesus, the, the, what we call the, um, the methods of Jesus, uh, the seven I statements. So now let's look at metrics. How do you measure this animal? So let's talk. I, I need feedback from you. How do, what typical things do churches measure today? Numbers. Numbers. Almost every bulletin have them. Numbers. What else? Budget. How much came in? How much went out? We're wrapped. What else? Attendance. Okay. What? Membership. Attendance versus membership. Okay. Membership. What else? Baptisms. Yeah. Some are better in that than others. Baptisms. Buildings. We've got nine campuses, ten campuses, you know, buildings. Okay, number of ministries. We've got this ministry, this ministry. We've got 47 programs or 22 
So those are normal metrics. They're not bad. I'm not saying they're bad. They serve their period. But if we are committed to making disciples and make disciples Jesus style, don't you think we need different metrics or maybe some additional metrics? Would you agree? So what you measure is important. Uh, my daughter, yes, a couple days ago, uh, Lee Ryan's always has the illustration of a businessman who builds a shoe factory. And he raises $100,000, hires a bunch of people, works for a year and a half. Some of the investors come in and say, well, how many shoes you made? Uh-oh, we haven't made any yet. But we're really working hard at it. Everybody's busy. Come and see the factory. Come and see the assembly line. We got, well, you have, what do you mean you haven't made any? Well, we're, we're working hard. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, but no shoes have popped out yet. Would you keep investing in that? No. What's the purpose of a shoe factory? Produce shoes. So you'd ask, well, don't you have a prototype? Oh, we supposed to have a prototype? No, we don't. But we're just hoping someday a shoe will pop out. You say, what a stupid business. <laughs> Sometimes don't we do the same thing? If the mission of our ministry is making disciples, how do we measure that? So, using the four chair, what would you say if this is the seeker, the come and see challenge, um, what would you say the end product? Covey says a real leader begins with the end in mind. So what would be the end product of chair one? If this is the lost person, the person who doesn't know Christ, the seeker who's investigating probably 80, 90% of your community. Okay, being born again. Uh, some people would call that salvation. salvation. Some people would call that conversion. Some people would call that redemption. A lot of terms. Some people call that being saved. So the end product of this, and this is why I always love a gap between chair one and chair two, because when I have it, I love to put a cross right here. The end product of chair one is to get people to the foot of the cross. Would you agree? To clearly present the gospel. We can't make God who gives salvation, the gift of salvation. But we can bring people to that. But we measure this by how many people have we seen come to Christ. Would you agree? That would be the metrics that we got to use for chair one. I like to define the end product of chair one as repentance or salvation or conversion. Now, again, this is where we're all different spectrums, but let's talk about that. A lot of us might think, oh, we get this. No, I might find very few churches know how to measure this well. So let's talk about how do you measure this? Now, if you're an individual, when you lead your neighbor to Christ, you let them to Christ. Woo! Praise God. But if you have a ministry, how do you measure it in a ministry? Like women's ministry or youth ministry or men's ministry. Or how do you measure this total church? I think there are tools that used to be used a year ago. If you like missiology, uh, McGavern is one of my favorites. Years ago, we used to use this tool. It hasn't been used for the last 20 years. It's called conversion growth percentage. It's being misused a lot by churches. Let me try to show you, the, the, I think, the right way to measure how we're doing at the end product of chair one. called conversion growth percentage. Now, here's how you calculate conversion growth percentages in your ministry. This is a 
goes way back 30 years in missiology. Get McGavern developed this. It's a great formula. And then we quit doing it because we started measuring in most of our ministries church growth, not conversion growth. Are you aware of that? You know, you can grow a church without new converts. Would you agree? Just get air conditioning in the South. Get a better preacher. Get better music. Would you agree? You can grow without accomplishing your mission. There are two ways to grow. You can grow through transfer growth, transfer from other churches, or conversion growth. Which do we want? Conversion. Conversion, Because our goal is to make disciples. And disciple making begins with winning the lost. By the way, let me just say this. Please hear this. I know I'll never solve this. I wish we could do away with the word discipleship. I think you ought to delete it from your vocabulary. Try to never use that word again. I could give you the history of this. Where that word first came about in 1850 by a guy named Charles Adams. Discipleship historically has meant growing people up in Christ. There used to be evangelism. Then there used to be discipleship. Two wings of the airplane. When you fly. Do you ever look out and say which wing is more important than the next? You need both. Discipleship. That's why I, I wish I'm trying to get this gathering to stop using the word discipleship. And it's kind of hard because a lot of people have it in their name. But why? Because the Great Commission is not go and do discipleship. Because here's my experience. When you train people in your church, when you say the word disciple, 90% of your people will automatically think more content, more curriculum, newer programs, and they think discipleship. How do I grow Christian? The command is not discipleship. The biblical command is to make disciples, disciple making. And disciple making involves all four of these chairs. Winning the loss, growing the believers, what we commonly call discipleship, equipping the workers, word kataritzel, which means to repair, prepare, equipping the workers, and then sending out proven multipliers. Disciple making, the Great Commission is all four chairs. Most of the people in church think it's deeper Bible studies. That's why I try to stop using the word discipleship. Okay, I made my plug. I've been saying that for 10 years and never helped. But do your best. So the, how do we measure? So conversion growth percentages is measured by the number of new converts over the number of regular attending believers in your church. So let's say you're a church of 100 or a women's ministry of 100 on average. You, you can figure averages over a year. We all know sometimes you have 120, sometimes you have 80, but averages. So what is the conversion growth percentage of this ministry? If you have three converts and 100 regular attending believers, what's the conversion growth percentage? 3%. So I want you to measure not in numbers, but percentages. Now why? I'll show you a little bit. That's the right way to measure. What is the conversion growth percentage? How many people we seem to come to Christ and to what degree? Let's say you're a bigger ministry of a thousand people. And you had 30 people come to Christ last year. Woo! Praise God. What's your conversion growth rate? 
What happens? You're a mega ministry of 10,000 people. Let's say you're a bigger ministry of 1,000 people. And you had 30 people come to Christ last year. Woo! Praise God. What's your conversion growth rate? What happens? You're a mega ministry of 10,000 people. And you had 300 baptisms. Now, by the way, this happened historically. I should put up, but I've got a paper clipping of Willow Creek. When they hit 10,000 people, they had a one baptism with 300 people, and they were labeled the most evangelistic church in America. And Bill Hybels didn't know how to calculate this, but he said intuitively, we're really lousy at evangelism. But they had 300 baptisms. With 10, what's their conversion growth rate? It's no different than a little church down the street. You see, this is why we got to get back to measuring conversion growth percentages. I'm going to suggest to you to be healthy, you should target 10% conversion growth rate. That means as a church, you'll double every 7.2 years through new converts. But first, what you've got to do as a ministry, you've got to go back and measure. I'm going to suggest that faith goal of a 10%. Now, that's just a faith goal. Uh, my friend uh, Rick Warren argues for 10% conversion growth biblically because he goes to Acts chapter 2 and says there are about 3,000 people or 30,000 people and they had 3,000 baptisms. So, but I, don't, I think that's fudging a little bit. <laughs> but 10% ought to be a target. That means every 7.2 years you'll double just through new converts. Now, do you see why this is important? Because if you're measuring just new people, how much are we growing? That's a stat, but it's not the... If our mission is to make disciples, are we achieving that through seeing new people come to Christ? In youth ministry, we encourage you to have 15 to 20% conversion growth rate every year. And it's very doable in youth ministry. There's a point when something like we had five to 10,000 youth groups, we're seeing that every year. If you start... I've been done this a lot. I've been in churches, church plants that are seeing a 25% conversion growth rate. You know what my challenge to them is? Slow down in your outreach. And it's, that's what, why? Because see, our mission is not just to get babies. Our mission is to what? Make disciple makers. So if you have, if you have 25% conversion growth rate, you are getting unhealthy because you've got all these babies with not enough parents to take care of them. You see that? We want to have, we want to be making disciples, so we need to measure conversion growth rate. So here's what you need to do in your ministry. You need to go back and research. As best you can. Now churches are not real good at keeping these numbers, but you need to start. What did you see? What's your faith goal? Here's what I encourage you. Go back first. Five years ago, what was your conversion growth rate? Three years ago. One year ago. And then set faith goals. What do you want to trust God for next year? Three years, five years. But you've got to have the right staff to do that. Now, let me just say this. There are a lot of ways to measure this. Our churches, where I work most of the time, we measure this by baptisms. How many people were baptized? Because we put a big role, like Ben talked about here, on the significance of an external expression of the internal reality of following Christ. Because if you, met, you count, well, we had 73 children raise their hands at an invitation. If you count them, you're probably getting faulty numbers. Would you agree? So most of the denominations I work like to measure this by baptisms. 
How many new baptisms did you see this last year? Make sense? How are we doing? <laughs> Not very many people said great. This is where it gets a little bit painful in some churches. 70% of the churches are not seeing any new comments. 30% of churches are growing. But you begin to measure them. A lot of them is transfer growth. It's not convert growth. So if you're an overseer, shepherd, what do you start begin to say? When you start measuring this, measuring the right, what, what kind of questions do you ask yourself? What? What's wrong? What else do you begin to ask yourself? What do we need to do differently? What else you begin to say? What's that? What can we do better? What do we need to stop doing? How many people even know how to share their faith? How many people even have friendships with the lost? You begin to ask the right questions. And you begin to realize your job as an overseer is to oversee disciple making. And if you're not making new disciples, the first chair one, if you're just transferring people from other churches, well, I, I, I commend you for staying there. But I say, change it. <laughs> Make sense? So here's some additional things I'll raise with you. And, and Glenn, you feel free to. I think you've got to set, begin to measure what's the conversion growth rate in our church. And you need to keep record of that yearly. If you lead women's ministry, you lead youth ministry, you need to measure that every year. Some years you'll have bumper crops, other years less. Like on a farm. 70 bushels an acre, 30 bushels an acre. Zero bushel an acre because we had a drought. 110 bushels an acre. That's fine. But what's your average? How many people are you seeing come to Christ? I think you need to ask the questions like, what's our faith goal? You know what research, all the research shows that when churches measure their conversion growth and then set a faith goal, even if they do nothing different, but set the goal and ask God to accomplish it, conversions double. That, that's the research. It's mind-boggling. Just by setting a faith goal and asking God, even if they do nothing different, conversions double. So for at least set a faith goal and start praying for it. How many non-Christian friends have your people established? How many of you? And, and again, this is where I like our Like Jesus app. I mean, again, this is free. You can download it. It's called Like Jesus app. You can get it on your phone. You can take the four-chair test through 24 questions, tell you what chair you're in, where you're at, what your next steps are. But, but on that app, we have everybody identify their circle of concern. And I just led like 15 people through it this summer, the four-chair thing. We tested at the beginning. We tested at the end. We saw the progress we're making. But our group of 15 had 46 non-Christians we were praying for during that 10 weeks. I call that our potential future church. A church of 100 who has three non-Christians identified by everybody and praying for them has a few, potential church of 300. Make sense? So how many non-Christians have we established religion? How many times have our people had a chance this week or month to have a spiritual conversation? On that app, we give a chance for people to say, I had a spiritual conversation or pray for me. I'm meeting with one of my three most wanted. Pray for me. So it's a way for small groups to communicate. But you can keep those metrics a different way. I could tell you lots of stories how churches do that. Ken, Glenn, you may want to give some. How many times have we shared the gospel this week or this month? 
You won't see new people come to Christ if you're not sharing the gospel. Not just the pastor preaching it, but and yourself personally. If you're just dealing with it personally, how many, how many times have you shared the gospel this last year? You won't see new converts if you don't share the gospel. Research shows if you want to see one person come to Christ this next year, you've got to share the gospel with five people. And statistically, you'll probably have one new baby. So how many times has the gospel been shared? How many times have you done this personally? Do we, if you don't know how to share the gospel, get some training. You see, we're measuring the right thing. Glenn, there's a mic here. Folks, uh, in this process, we want to we want to talk about engagement. So, we're asking these questions in small group, and we ask them on a regular basis because a part of our our DNA is we want to grow groups, grow people. And so, if we're growing people, then we're asking these. Our, our leaders are constantly asking these several questions here. How many did you have a spiritual conversation this week? How did it go? Uh, who are the people on your most wanted list? So, this intentional leader is helping them process this through. Also, when we were beginning to make some real changes in our outreach, we began to look at, we were very, very low on conversion growth rate. We needed to make some adjustments. What we began to do in our outreaches is sometimes when we say, hey, we want to reach more people, we start adding more outreach programs. It's the wrong approach. Are our outreach programs being effective? We had to retool some of our outreach programs. And so we started measuring are we seeing somewhere between 40 and 50% of those who are coming to our outreach programs who are lost and de-churched? So we start looking at, hey, and we start, you know, we really start, that's why we have people fill things out and we get, we start, you know, asking questions. We do a huge program for outreach. And one of the ways we track whether or not those are successful is, are we seeing and to what degree are we seeing people who are unchurched, of coming to those programs and beginning involved. And if, if over a period of time, those programs are not seeing 40 to 50%, we either retool it or we get rid of it. Thanks, guys. And just hang on to that. Okay, so I need to keep moving. Uh, so chair one metrics. Now let's look at chair two. What would you say is the end product? And this, the first John says, this is a baby. And this is a teenager. Children, young men, fathers, first John two. So this is a, a new Christian. What would you say is the end product of chair two? How do you know when a person is, is growing up as a baby? What would you define that as? Turn to the person next to you and share what you think the answer might be. What do you, how do you measure when a person's done with chair two or ready to move to chair three? Okay, I'd love to be in your group. We could spend three hours on this. This is a critical question. All right? This is very critical. I believe this measurement is what most churches get wrong. And this is more conceptual. So I'm going to try to give it to you. I'm going to throw out some thought processes. You've got to chew on it. And I'll I'll ask some feedback from Glenn. But I want to get to chairs three and four. So, But this one, uh, I'm going to suggest the end product of chair two is serving. Now, think in terms of babies. Babies are me, 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 my, my, mine. You serve me. You change my diaper. You feed me. You help me get somewhere. That's a baby. 
My, my daughter, when she taught the four chairs, said there are five things babies need. They need to learn to walk, talk, feed themselves, clean themselves, and their identity, who's they are. And that's really, she's written little booklets on those. You can go to sunlife.com and get them. Very good. But when does a baby grow? It's sad to see somebody in church for 20 years still in diapers. So I believe the end product of a baby, an infant who's growing and maturing, beginning to feed themselves, live a cleansed life, walk in the power of their spirit, is they begin to be other-oriented. Would you agree? They begin to share their toys. They begin to be concerned about their friends. They begin to ask, who are my friends? How do I serve other people? How am I grateful to mom and dad? You know, they're other-oriented. Would you agree? That's a sign of growing up. That's a baby who's ready to move to teenager year, adolescent. They're other-oriented. Biblically, that's often called serving, service. Now, this, I believe, for so many churches has become the end product of the whole thing. I just want to get people serving. That's really faulty. Let me unpack this. And again... (laughs) We've got a lot of training on this. Some of you have been around Sun Life or are familiar with this. We have an M1 to M7 process of measuring degrees of service because all serving is not the same. Did you hear me? All kinds of serving is not the same. I'm going to talk about the first five levels of serving. The first M1 to M3 are what we call task-oriented serving. We're going to work in the nursery. We're going to usher. We're going to be a greeter. It's just we need you. We're going to clean up the room when we're done. We need you to complete a task. Would you agree that's ministry? Absolutely. But are you a fully trained disciple if you just know how to clean up after a meeting? No, there's far more. That's serving. So M1 serving is what we call task-oriented projects. Come and help clean up the church when we're done. It's a task. Ministry, yes. Fully trained, Luke 640, no. M2 is when they begin to do people care projects. They serve in the nursery, take care of the babies, change diapers so the parents can go to church. Is that service? Absolutely. Are you a fully trained disciple if you do that all your life? I don't think so. I think there's more than that Jesus had in mind. Then M3, what I call evangelism projects. Many churches have made this the ultimate. You're going to really step out of the boundaries and you're going to go overseas for two weeks. Our church sent a group of people to Nepal. They're doing a vacation Bible school in Nepal. I know a bunch of people went. They were scared to death. But you know what I found about short-term mission projects? Most anybody can muster up courage to go somewhere else and do it for two weeks, but eventually you get to what? Whoo, I'm home. Now, are you a, full term, a fully trained disciple if you've just done one or two midges projects? I don't think so. Is that important? Absolutely. But we want to get to Luke 640 fully trained. You go somewhere else across the border. To, now you get into what I call peer care, and we're going to talk peer share. This is peer-to-peer ministry. This is serving that's harder. Because now we're not just doing tasks, two-week mission trip. We're doing people-related stuff. And disciple-making New Testament, the best phrase in my mind is 1 Thessalonians 2 9, the imparting of our life. It's relational. Anybody who's been around discipling for a while will tell you it's 90% relational. Imparting your life. 
your love for God to others. It's relational. But that takes relationships. It takes peer-to-peer. This is where you begin to learn all the 40 one-another verses in the Bible. How to love one another, pray for one another, care for one another, serve one another. That's harder, isn't it? Because people are messy. But that's a, is that a skill that has to be learned? Audience response question? Yes. Absolutely. But are you fully trained if you just know how to get along with other Christians? I don't think so. Not if you go back to Jesus. Now, again, a little bit, I'm fine. This is where you begin to serve unbelievers. You love the lost. You pray for the lost. You minister to the lost. You be a friend of sinners. That's a lot harder, isn't it? Why is that harder? Give me some answers. You teach this stuff. Dale, why is this harder? Why is it harder to love the lost? It's outside of your comfort zone. Why out? Peer rejection. You're going to get rejected. They're not going to be nice to you as church people should be. Not always, but they should be. What? They're messier. They're a lot messier. They're two guys living together, married next door, and you're going to love them, serve them, minister to them? Yeah, friend of sinner. It's a lot messier, and it's harder. It stretches your faith. But that's peer-to-peer ministry. You not only just one another the believers, but now you serve and love the lost. A lot harder. A lot harder. Now, here's some things I think we've got to measure. Now I'll let Glenn say something if he wants to. I think we've got to measure what percentage of our people are growing into maturity by beginning to serve. Should have 30 to 50% of your congregation serving in some form, in the church or outside of the church. How many people are beginning growing in their ability to serve? Not just non, non-peer, but peer-to-peer. What percentage of your people are involved in that non-peer serving? M1 to 3, ushering, greeting, That's good. That's good. I'm not saying it's not bad, but it's not the ultimate. What percent of your people are doing peer-to-peer serving or loving the lost or serving in the neighborhood, serving their community? Maybe they're not at church very much. You know why? Because they're out in the harvest field as a worker. And I've been in a church that literally criticized people because you're doing stuff in your neighborhood you should be serving in the church. That's why Jesus got criticized, because he was called a friend of sin. What can be done to move more people toward that peer-to-peer? Glenn, what are some things you try to measure on this? Yeah, in church so, right now? so for where we are at Crossroads, we, we look at two things. Ministry engagement. In other words, how many new people are engaging in ministry, as well as our ministry teams. Are they growing? Uh, and to what degree? And then we're also looking at, at, at uh, small groups. How many new people are engaging in getting in small groups? And how many of those groups are, are, are multiplying and growing? So okay, we, so we look real... at them very intently <laughs> all the time. We're looking at that all throughout the year and watching that and engaging those, those two those very closely. And I know as pastor, he gets a, a scorecard almost every week. Every week I look at that scorecard. And we, we check that over. And then we as a lead team are constantly talking about the implications of that. 
And, and I, also, I also know I, when I write this ebook up, I'm going to do their church as a case study. But even on the chair one, they're measuring how many new people are coming, how many contacts that we made, how many people are coming back a second and third time. There's so many more metrics, but they're, they're measuring the right things. They're measuring, are we seeing people come to Christ? And then are we seeing people grow up in Christ? Okay, and again, we could keep unpacking that, but I'm just trying to give you the high level here to stretch your thinking. Now, let's go to chair three. What do you think the end product of this worker is? How would you do, how do you know when you're ready to, you, you completed chair three and now you're ready to go to chair four? What would be the metrics for the end product of chair three? Turn to your neighbor and tell them what you think it is. Okay, for time's sake, I'm going to put together. I wish I could have sat in all this discussion. I'd love to hear what you said. I have a think I have a hunch of what you said. Again, I'm going to deal with this at a high level. I'm going to make a bold statement here. And some of you will feel uncomfortable with this. But I think the end product of this is reproduction. You lead someone to Christ. Or, please hear me on this. Please hear this. You either lead someone to Christ or you play a key role in their coming to Christ. And the only way you know this is when they get the, that new believer gets baptized, you ask them, who led you to Christ or who played the key role in your coming to Christ? I'm much better at reaping, sharing the gospel. My wife is much better at cultivating and planting, bringing people to the foot of the cross. I help them cross the line and come to Christ. I probably led more people to Christ than my wife, but she, in the, when you get to heaven, is going to get way ahead of me in rewards. Because she's done the hard part of cultivating planting. And, and, but how many people would identify you as the key person that made, helped them cross the line or you led them to Christ? Whew, that's a tough measurement, isn't it? Because now we get down to nuts and bolts. And some people say, but I'm not a good evangelist. I'm not either. Evangelism is the, one of the lowest of my gifts. I'm more of an equipper, trainer. But I have a passion for evangelism. I had to learn that skill. But it's not my gifting. I was under Pastor Dave Stone who had the gift of evangelism. We'd go to a restaurant, he'd lead the waitress to the Lord. Sometimes even the cook. I mean, he just, he just had that gift. I just didn't, and it just bugged me. But, but... But bottom line is you're not moving toward becoming a disciple maker until you make a disciple. You reproduce. Would you agree? This is a tough measurement, isn't it? Would you agree? Some of you are looking at me weird. What do you, I'd love to know what you're thinking. I'm out of time. I've got to keep going. So this is where you move to M6, M7. This is where you build friendships. You begin to serve your neighbors. And now you begin to present God into that relationship and you do what we call cultivating, planting, or reaping. That's spiritual CPR. Cultivating, you build a friendship. Planting, you bring up God in that friendship. And reap, you clearly and concisely share the gospel and lead someone to Christ. That's spiritual CPR. This is the goal. Or you get to, and then you do this enough, and you see, have somebody come to Christ or two people come to Christ. Now you become a disciple maker. Why? Because you've, you've got a baby. Here's my point. You haven't made a disciple until they make a disciple. You haven't made a disciple until you see reproduction. And so, I wish I had time. I'm out of time, but I just, one more thing. Most churches measure the end product of this M1, M1 to 3 or M3 and 4. You're a good Christian if you serve, 
or if you take a missions trip. We define the end product M3. Jesus defined the end product as M6 and M7. Follow me, I will what? I'll teach you to reproduce. How do I know this biblically? Matthew 4, 19. Follow me, I'll make you fisher of men. Luke 10, 21. The only time you find Jesus full of joy by the Holy Spirit is in three and a half years into it, he sent his 72 out two by two. They come back full of joy. And Jesus is full of joy. Why? Because reproduction was happening. That was his laser focus. In Acts 8, I could talk about the leaders got stayed in Jerusalem, persecution in, and everywhere the lay people went, they preached the gospel and they planted churches. It was a movement done by lay people. That's where I think it really kicks in. A movement of reproduction, lay people. So, who are the people in your ministry who have led someone to Christ? Maybe you need to ask them. Or play the key role. Someone come to Christ. It's a tough question. You might get criticized for asking it. But if you haven't been watching that and monitoring it, how do you know? How many non-Christians are we as a ministry praying for? You're a church of 1,000. Do you have 3,000 people you're praying for? How often are we providing training and helping people tell their story? Because if you want people to lead someone to Christ, you've got to provide training for them. How many evangelistic events in a year are we providing to help our people share Christ? And are they the right kind of events, like Glenn was saying? What are we doing to help people? So rather than this saying this, this was a game changer for me and my ministry. When I began to understand my mission was not to make disciples as much as it was to make disciples who could make disciples. Jesus' mission was not to reach the world. Jesus' mission was to make disciples capable of reaching the world. And I began to say, okay, as a leader of a ministry of 200 young people, I don't want to see 20 people come to Christ this year. I want to see 20 people of my kids lead someone to Christ for the first time. Now we have a movement. So rather measuring how many people came to Christ, how many people led someone to Christ for the first time? Because you want to, doesn't something happen when you have your first baby? What do I do now? They don't come with instruction. And your people will ask the same thing when they give birth to a new baby. Lastly, I just, I'm out of time, but I'm sorry you can go if you need to. But I just, the end product, the chair four, and I'm just going to say this quickly. Is, whoops, I'm sorry. His grandkids. In other words, you've made a disciple who makes a disciple. That became the buzzword at Southeast where I trained all the staff. You haven't made a disciple until they make a disciple. Right? That's a, t- that's a high bar. I can't raise the bar any higher than that in a Christian life. But, but the bottom line is you can't do it. But God wants to do it through you. You see, the beautiful thing, you get to chair four and you, you led someone to Christ and now you teach them to lead someone to Christ. So when I get a baby, I got to train, raise them up, grow them up. And I find once you learn how to do this, you can grow people up within two, three months where they can re- lead their friend to Christ. Some take longer, but it can be a faster process than it took you to get there. But when they lead someone to Christ, now you've got spiritual grandkids and your son or daughter in the faith ask. Grandpa or dad, how do I disciple them? Now you've got grandkids. Woo! Life is good with grandkids, isn't it? 
How many have grandkids? It's no more fun than having grandkids. If I'd known grandkids were going to be that much fun, I would have had them first. But in, and you sit in this chair for 20, 30, 40 years of walking as Jesus walked. And then you have great grandkids and great, great grandkids and great, 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 great grandkids. And you have grandkids you haven't met. And you've got to fly around the world to meet your spiritual grandkids. Life doesn't get any better than that. You have a movement of multiplication through the impact of your life. And then if you team up with a church that's doing this, can you multiply? So here are the questions. And I, I'm sorry, I went long. Who are the people in our ministry that have spiritual grandchildren? Maybe you need to ask that question. How often has this process been repeated? By the way, Christian Mission Alliance and Dale here, he served with him for a number of years. They surveyed what was about 3,000 of your pastors. We asked this question, how many of their pastors? Was it 62% of their pastors that never personally led someone to Christ? If I remember those stats right, when they first did this survey, you know you've got a problem in your church if your pastors have never even led someone to Christ. Again, this is no shame, no guilt. But it's so easy to go through Bible school and seminary and never do this. And so if some of you are sitting here, I've never led someone to Christ. There's probably a lot of you in this room. It's okay. It's okay. But it's not okay five years from now. Say, God, what do I need to do? How do I lead someone? Get me there, Father. Bring people in my life. Because that's the passion of your heart. That's why you're here. You're not here just to teach more curriculum. You're here to reproduce. And to learn those lessons. How many of our chair four people have the gift of leadership? Those are the ones you love to find because you send them out as church planners, as missionaries, as ministry launchers. Southeast where I work, they used to give me all these chair four people, and I love it. That's my niche, just chair three, chair four people. And they were people who had led someone to Christ, they led someone to Christ, and they got a growing movement, and, and I would just work with them and find out, and some launched a you know, women's ministry, some would launch a men's ministry, some would do all church planning, some would go into the business world, start a men's business. And these are kind of people you send out, and they're just, they just create their own movements. And, and unfortunately, sometimes chair four people become the enemy for a traditional church. Literally, I'll just say this, I got to quit. I was in a church, a good church, that sent the elders to rebuke a person who is leading his neighbors to Christ and baptizing them in their own pool rather than baptizing them in the church because he was leading a lot of bikers to Christ and they were too scared to come to church. So he started his own church in his home. And the elders went and said, why are you not on the team? Sounds sad, doesn't it? But there's way too many churches that feel that way about chair for people. How many ministries have we launched? Okay, so we got these leaders boxes. If you just want to get a taste of this, uh, discounted price here. It's those mission model methods. I got an ebook coming out of Metrics. Uh, we just are laser focused on how Jesus did this. So if this will help you, it's designed. You teach it to your people. Your people personally study it, and then you get small groups to discuss it. But maybe you're a small group leader. You can just do this in your small group. It's a really cheap way to do it. You don't even have to buy the books. So I don't win from this. You buy a month subscription for 12 bucks and you get 20 free, everything on your app, 50 videos, metrics. By the way, I didn't tell you, we've got a great metrics thing on here. Uh, 
you, you can come to our booth or you go online and see the metrics. Um, I'll just show you a sample of it. Where if you do this church-wide, here's one church. Said they had, they had 47 people at percent of the people at chair two, 36% at chair three, 11% at chair four. They are 681 non-Christians they were praying for. It's a, a dashboard for your leadership of your church. When you get people engaged in using that app and small groups studying the life of Christ, you can see a church-wide metrics of what's going on. A guy who developed this right back here is Josh. Talk to Josh. Talk to Doug. Uh, we got some of these if you want to look at it and get a sample for it. Thank you. I went over time. My apologies. That wraps it up for today's episode. Download Like Jesus Initiative founder Dan Spader's free ebook, Disciple Making Metrics, when you go to discipleship.org slash ebooks. Thanks for listening, and make sure to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think of our content.